0: As we come to our time in God's Word, I would like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And I want to continue our message from last week, three unexpected reasons for joy in the Christian life. And as always, I want to ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. As is part of my routine, sometimes I like to take the kids to the park. And on one particular day, as we were at the park, it was busier than usual. And one lady showed up with, I don't know if it was kids or grandchildren, but there was nobody that could make her happy. She had a fight and quarrel with her own kids and with other people at the park. I stayed and observed it because I figured it would make a good sermon illustration. (laughs) That's not true, but (laughs) it has turned into one. At one point, a group of young men, group two or three of them, came, and and they parked behind her. And they parked very close to her to the point of bumpers touching. Not only did did this aggravate her, but it made it difficult because she couldn't get the stroller into the car. And it created a quarrel that was very public with threats of calling the police, um... At one point, he did offer to give her insurance and things like that, and whatever it may be, at one point, we finally chose to leave because it was clearly escalating. Police never did come, to the best of my knowledge, but it was clearly that this lady just had a problem with everybody, and I'm not going to defend the gentleman's actions either. In both cases, they were wrong. He certainly shouldn't have caused problems by parking where he did when he could have gone up at three spaces more and been fine, but her response was not appropriate either Roy Hessian shares and it's a longer quote that I want to read to you as we think about that situation says our relationship with our fellows and our relationship with God are so linked that we cannot disturb one without disturbing the other everything that comes between us and another such as impatience and resentment or envy comes between us and God as well These barriers are sometimes no more than veils, veils through which we can still, to some extent, see. But if not removed immediately, they thicken into blankets and then into brick walls, and we are shut off from both God and our fellows, shut in to ourselves. I don't know the relationship between that woman and and God. I don't know the relationship between those men and God but I will say that upon looking at it, that their non-existence alliance to one another certainly indicated a non-existent allegiance to the Lord, at least from an outward perspective. Our relationship with others is reflective of our relationship with God, and our relationship with God will be reflected in our relationships with others. The text of Colossians 3.10-11 through 11 draws out for us three reasons for Christian joy. And as we continue in our text this morning, we move into that final reason. And that final reason is indeed that idea of connection and communication and contact with others. I want to remember quickly, though, the things that we looked at last week. First, the joy of courageous revival. Reversal, sorry the joy of courageous reversal at the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 sin was introduced into the world and now here we are thousands of years later and our existence is still defined by sin but those who are in Christ they've put on the new self as we talked about this old self the sinful horrific nature it comes off and and on goes this new self of Christ likeness and of holiness. This is the joy of courageous reversal. It's courageous because it causes us to examine ourselves and do so intensely and intentionally. That sometimes can be a very painful process. But it's also reversal because it causes us to turn from the ways of the old life and turn towards Christ. The text goes on to say in verse 10 that the new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so now we have the joy of continual renewal. Again, what happened at the fall? The sin of man at that point, it granted humans indeed more knowledge by granting us a knowledge of good and evil. But it took away our knowledge of God. We lost our knowledge of God. And so becoming further entrenched into the sinful flesh, those made into the image of God also began to distort the image of God. But Christ who is both wisdom and knowledge restores what was lost at the fall through continual renewal, or what I would call progressive sanctification. And so the Christian no longer needs to live in the trenches of depravity, but in the joy of continual renewal, And now I want you to know, finally, the joy of Christ-like relationships. If I can get there. It's not there. It updated this morning, and it changed the color of the text and removed some of it. It is what it is. We have to work with it. So the third point is the joy of Christ-like relationships. So verse 11 reads, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. While verse 10 brings about newness, verse 11 brings about oneness. Where the culture produces division, Christ propagates unification, and that's what we see here. For people only see the gap of differences between people. It is our Lord Jesus Christ who provides this necessary structure to traverse those differences. In other words, to bridge that gap. And this great paradox, the most polarizing person in human history, is also the most unifying figure in human eternity, Jesus Christ and as we've examined the text of Colossians chapter ten last <laughs> week, it became very clear that the Lord teaches us through contrast. We saw that in each point. And he does so to bring clarity to his word so that we can understand it more. Now, in one verse, verse eleven, we have four contrast, four contrast of human relationships and human distinctions. And through them it demonstrates the incredible work of Christ. In those relationships, the testimony of humanity is that when relationships are dependent upon humans, those relationships, those relationships among the individuals are at best dysfunctional. All we need to do is look around us, maybe even at ourselves, and see just how many relationships are broken to know that the human system of relationships is dysfunctional. Simply look at the divorce rate and that will confirm that. Years ago it was said, and I don't know if it's still this or if it's higher, it's certainly not less, the divorce race was 50% of all marriages. 50% of all marriages end in divorce. That tells us then that 50% of all marriages are a mess. Otherwise they wouldn't have ended in divorce. And that doesn't account to those who are still together and yet their marriage is unhealthy. But marriage is an obvious example. But it's only one type of relationship. That doesn't count our discord with with coworkers. It doesn't count broken friendships. And it doesn't even talk about severed relationships within families. It's just the other day I was sharing with someone else about broken relationships in my own family through the years. But evidence suggests that that's actually the norm, not the exception. That most relationships, or many relationships, I should say, in families are severed. But the incredible nature of our relationship with Christ is that through him he not only reconciles us to himself, but he reconciles us to others. Through Christ there is harmony where none existed before. And as we look on Colossians three eleven, I want us to consider the first of the four distinctions. We notice first, from the first contrast, that Christ overcomes culture. We have this comparison here between Greek and Jew, and in that comparison, it uncovers for us two groups of people. The contrast between Greek and Jew is frequent in Scripture. Romans chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 say, There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. Culture here does not determine the Lord's favor, but a person will receive equal wrath and glory from Christ, regardless of their background. And yet, that's not how people acted. From varying backgrounds and beliefs and behaviors, the differences between the Greeks and the Jews were extreme, While many people set themselves against the Jews, it was the Greeks who tolerated the Jews least of all. And so scripture points to this wide gap between those two cultures, and that's why we have the comparisons. The divisions between the Greeks and the Jews were so extreme that Jewish people refused to intermingle with them. They would refuse to enter the house of a Gentile. They would not buy meat from a Greek person. They would not even eat a meal cooked by Greeks, and as if those behaviors were not extreme enough, they would shake off the dust from their feet in case it was contaminated by those of Gentile feet. And before we become too critical and and too harsh at judging the Jews for their treatment of the Greeks, the Greeks treated the Jews in the very same way. And so what we have is this relationship between two groups. It's not one of one-sided repudiation. Rather, it was one of mutual detestation, with each side equally hating the other. Under his rule, Alexander the Great made various attempts to try to bridge that gap. And then when they conquered the land, the Romans came in and tried to do some of the same. But a lack of understanding and a lack of appreciation of those differences made their attempts superficial and futile. They were able to accomplish nothing because they couldn't do what only Christ can do. Only the work of Christ has the capacity to remove boundaries and overcome these differences of culture. Romans 3.29 offers a question. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. There is no distinction between cultures with God. As he is one God, then the people of God are one people. If God is one, then his people should be united in oneness as well. This oneness of culture means then that there's also only one gospel. If this were not the case, if there were no wholeness of people, we would have to adapt to the gospel or the gospel would change based on people groups. But it's written, I am not ashamed of the gospel, one gospel for everyone. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This reality makes ministry possible. It makes the church functional. Because God is the same God for all, dealing with people in the same way, with the same gospel the church and individuals of the church are able to fulfill the Great Commission to evangelize to those who are not part of the church and to make disciples of those who are part of the church. Several months ago, we read the book Rediscover Church, or at least I hope most of you read it. In one of those chapters, Colin Hansen points out that the church's definition of fellowship is frequently adopted from one of two worldly perspectives. First is to celebrate diversity, by prioritizing differences. Primarily ethnicity, nationality, gender. And we see that list even going on. The other perspective is to celebrate uniformity. That is, not have any variations in background, belief, or behavior. Those two things, diversity and uniformity, seem like polar opposites. But at the heart, they actually have something in common. They create community through exclusion. The Christ here, he builds his church not on exclusion, but on inclusion. Whether Jew or Gentile, all are included in God's plan. And as we look at that, if they have repented of sin and turned to Christ, they're part of God's church. So Christ creates inclusion. Inclusion. When we recognize this, we begin to appreciate the differences in people rather than being frustrated by them. The life of a missionary often reflects one of oneness. Each missionary has been placed into a particular culture. And in almost every case, that culture is different than their own. Even those of our missionaries that we know of that are placed in the United States are often called to a different culture. Those differences sometimes can be very humorous. I know of one man who, as he was trying to learn the language of his host culture that he had moved to, he had constant problems with his throat. And I don't know the exact disease he had, but there was actually some physical thing there. And it meant that he had to constantly clear his throat. And so one time, somebody asked him if he was okay, and he was trying to explain, yeah, I'm fine, and trying to explain what was going on with his throat. And literally what he said is, i manured in my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) indeed sometimes those differences can be humorous other times those differences are frustrating more frequently they are frustrating for the missionaries, simple everyday tasks can become burdensome trying to get paperwork done or pay a bill they're always a hassle where we were and these are simple tasks but we could never get people to tell us what we needed One time we had a bill that we had to pay. For whatever reason, we actually had to go get the bill from the electric company. And then they gave us the bill, and we had to walk blocks and go pay the bill. And then we had to leave there and then tell them we paid the bill at the electric company. So three stops. That in itself is a little bit burdensome, but it's made more difficult by the fact that lines where we lived... You constantly had to wait 45 to 60 minutes. You just took a 10 minute task for a $10 bill and turned it into a three hour project. The only slight alleviation for that was understanding the culture. That the system was built in to avoid corruption because corruption was such an issue for their society. They had to make it as difficult as possible for that to exist. But it's a love of Christ that compels individuals and families to leave their home culture, the one they know or the one they likely love, so that they may serve Christ in another culture. And it's a love of Christ that causes one to acknowledge and even appreciate those cultural differences. Christ overcomes culture. Notice also, though, that Christ also overcomes creed. We see this in the next contrast, the distinction between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And I don't mean to say that Christ accepts all religions or all beliefs, but rather that when someone comes to God through Christ, they are united in the same belief, the same gospel. Much like the distinction between Greek and Jew, The circumcised and uncircumcised can draw attention to their ethnicity and their cultural distinctions, but here it has an emphasis on their religious distinctions. Circumcision is spread throughout scripture. From beginning to end, it is consistently a picture of one's relationship with God. We see it introduced first in Genesis chapter 17, and as an outward sign of the Lord's covenant with Abraham. Already Abraham has advanced in age, and the word of God reads, beginning in verse 1, Genesis 17, 1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. And then jumping down to verse 10, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring." Both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money, bought with your money, sorry, shall surely be circumcised, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Verse 14, any circumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from the people. He has broken my covenant. This outward sign distinguished between Jews and Greeks, Jews and non-Jews, really quite Literally. And yet it's doubtful that anybody would know who was circumcised or not. The mark was hidden. It's hidden from public view, and so just walking down the street, you're not going to know who is a Jew and who is not. What was most important was this was a mark of one's covenant, one's submission to God. And thus, it was an act highlighting a person's relationship with God. Paul writes to the Galatians, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Romans teaches us that the work of Christ made this physical act irrelevant. Instead, it emphasized the inward circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. And while a physical circumcision was a Jewish practice specific to Israel, by transforming it into a heart attitude, it becomes both accessible and relevant to all people. Because a heart establishes one's relationship with the Lord. And so it's the heart that must undergo circumcision, we learn in the New Testament. J.C. Ryle writes of both, saying the heart must be the principal point to which we attend in all relationships, relations between God and our souls. What is the first thing That we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. I want to stop right there. I want to pause because I want to, before I go further, I want you to consider the depth of that statement alone. What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. As we've talked much about putting off the old self and putting on the new self these last month or so, what is the center of every human being? The heart. So taking off the old self and putting on the new self means taking out the old heart and putting in the new heart. It's the need for the circumcision of the heart. And lest we think that this is a New Testament practice only, a New Testament concept, I want you to consider the Lord's relationship with Israel. And what did he tell them through the prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah 9, 25 through 26. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Even with Israel, God's concern was not so much about the circumcision of the flesh, but their circumcision of the heart. A circumcision of the heart was always at the heart of the Lord's concern. <clears throat> the need to love the Lord your God with all your heart then becomes clear. J.C. Ryle continues his thoughts, so and we continue, it says, what is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. And what is the chief request that wisdom, that being Christ, makes to everyone? My son, give me your heart. At the core of one's relationship with God then is the heart and therefore it is the heart that must be circumcised. This act, then, is not exclusive to Israel. This is something that is called for everyone. The call for a heart circumcision is something that everybody who believes in Christ must endure. This act binds a person to Christ. The result of such circumcision, then, is the removal of hostility, and in its place, this Lord establishes, Enmity is discarded first between us and God, putting in its place reconciliation and peace with God, and the result, a natural effect of that peace with God is peace with others. And So having an established relationship with God neutralizes any hostility we have with others by uniting believers with the work of Christ. In this way, Christ overcomes creed. It's a third contrast here, though, between barbarian and Scythian, that provides probably the most difficult for understanding. But a look at these people will tell us one thing: that Christ overcomes cruelty. During the days of Paul, the Greek text reveals that that word barbarian there was a derogatory term. It was used to refer to anybody who was not a Greek. And it drew attention particularly to those who were considered or uneducated and they spoke inarticulately, especially by stammering when they spoke. The word itself, barbarian, says this in the sound of the word. That repeat it, you hear it, bar, 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 barbarian. Thence the stammering. But of these barbarians, of those that were not Greeks, there was a class of people that was hated most of all, the Scythians. In the eyes of the Greek, there was nobody worse than the Scythians. In his writings, the Church Father Tutulin insulted other people by saying that they were more filthy than any Scythian. Even the noted historian Josephus described these people as a people who delight in murdering people, and they are little better than wild beasts. This reputation is well-earned, though. There was a reason they were considered the most feared and the most cruel of all non-Greeks. Indeed, the the Scythians, they they lived just north of the Black Sea, what is today present-day Kazakhstan, I think, or Kazakhstan, something like that. Herodotus, a Greek philosopher, described them as a people who wanted to make themselves masters of Asia, and in the 7th century BC, they invaded the fertile Crescent, And at one point, they even drove out the Amerians out of Europe. And then when they did that, they turned towards Egypt to conquer more. And what happened was the pharaoh, Semethicus, who was king at that time in Egypt, he met them in Syria and persuaded them not to advance any further by lavishing them with gifts. So then they turned their energies elsewhere. And indeed, they ruled Asia for 28 years. I apologize in advance for the graphic nature of what I'm going to tell you, but I want to describe this because I want you to understand how appalling they were. When they entered battle, when the Scythians came into battle, and as they would engage with their enemy, the first person that fell would be the first person's blood they literally drank. And then when everything left behind and there were remnants of people here and there, they would go back and remove their heads and take them and turn their skulls into their drinking bowls and their scalps into their napkins. This indeed was a terrifying and horrible people. There are few words to capture the atrocities of what these people committed. And there are certainly no words and no excuses and no justification for their brutality. Such a vile nature, though, highlights the greatness of God. Their behavior should call us to contemplate two aspects, two things here. First, by their character, we see the depths of human depravity. It shows us just how wicked the human heart is, hence the need for circumcision of the heart. There is nothing in that Scythian behavior that is not already in any sinner, including you and I. It's only by the work of God's grace that any of us is restrained and kept from expressing our sin in that way. And it teaches us then the need to continually guard our heart and hold our minds captive against the wickedness of the world. But this should also not just cause us to notice the depths of man's depravity, but also to see the greatness of God's work and the greatness of Christ's worth. Earlier in our study, months ago, we, we... saw that Christ reconciled all things to himself. And in Colossians through 22 he writes, Paul writes, Through Christ, God reconciles to himself all things. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and anyone who believes holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The work of Christ overcomes the cruelty of our sin against God and humans. Reconciliation with God occurs through this process. And through that also means that we have reconciliation with others. If God can forgive human cruelty on that level, certainly humans can too. I recognize in saying that it doesn't make it any easier. It's still hard to forgive. Maybe you know the story, maybe you don't, of Corrie Ten Boom. She had been arrested with her sister Betsy when the Nazis had occupied holland that's where she was from they'd been arrested for concealing jews her sister betsy would eventually die there but cory tembu made it out and in 1947 she traveled from holland all the way to germany to teach on forgiveness of all things and after her teaching she writes the solemn faces stared back at me not quite daring to believe There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, they collected their wraps. And in silence, they left the room. And then she talks that as she was standing there, she watched a man from the back stand up and start coming towards her. And she says what she saw at that moment was the man in his overcoat and in his cap. But then that changed as she recognized who it was. And what she saw then was a blue uniform and a visored cap with a skull and crossbones. She goes on to write, It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. Now he was in front of me. And his hand thrust out. And they said a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And she says, I spoke glibly of forgiveness. And yet here I fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. She talks of her remembrance of of what it was like to be there. And at that moment, she says, it felt like her blood was seeming to freeze. But the man went on and said, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear what I would like to hear from your lips as well, Fräulein. Will you forgive me? Corey Ten Boom writes, and I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven. And I could not. Betsy, her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. But I had to do it, and I knew that. And indeed, the story goes on that she extended forgiveness. Christ overcomes cruelty. Cruelty. And finally, we see the last contrast in our text and note that Christ overcomes class. It's a slave and free man here. That's a frequent distinction in scripture and it's probably the most understood in all of scripture. It's used in a variety of ways. Often it's a choice analogy between those who are slaves to sin but those who are free in Christ. More importantly here though, It's a distinction of class. It contrasts the poorest of the poor with the richest of the rich. This was a society defined by class. There was no crossover between each other than service. Once class defined his or her status in society, with Christ, though, that's no longer the case. Salvation was not exclusive to one group or another, but is made available to all. The church then is not an exclusive club but it's also available to all not just to those who are selected. This is one of the characteristics that makes God's church a unique institution. Not only was it chartered by God rather than men but then God made it available and relevant to all people. Consider what James says in chapter 2 chapter 2 verse 1 My brothers Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and a fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves? And become judge with evil thoughts? Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. A friend of mine tells of his time in Idaho when he was a pastor. He'd been called to this area that was known as a prime vacation spot. And so as a result, it was a place where the wealthy lived and the celebrities vacationed, and money made up that society. But that was not the case for everyone. In fact, this city had become divided by north and south. One was considered extremely wealthy, and the other was a poor part of town. I couldn't tell you which is which, and it's not relevant here. But as that man entered that ministry, and after being there for a time, (coughs) the gentleman that orchestrated his call to that church said, Do you know why I wanted you to come here? because those distinctions between north and south, between the rich and the poor, they were creeping into the church. And I thought God could use you to help overcome those. It was creating more than division. It was becoming a church steeped in classism. And he thought this particular friend could help overcome that perspective. If Christ is in all and, and of all, as our text says, then nothing can be divided from him. Status in society doesn't matter. In fact, it's irrelevant. Consider something else along these lines though. Why is it important that the church is available to all people? I've said it several times now in the sermon. <clears throat> because it's relevant to all people. Ultimately the issues and the concerns faced by any individual. They're matters of the heart. And these issues of the heart do not distinguish between a person's wealth. They don't hit a poor person more than a rich person or vice versa. The hard issue then for us is sin. It's an issue of sin for every person, and it's the same. And the solution is the same. It's Christ. If the church limits who it preaches Christ to, then the church has limited the work of Christ. But by Christ, there is no distinction. No distinction between Greek and Jew, between circumcision and uncircumcision, between barbarian and Scythian, and even the slave and the free man are united. Christ overcomes culture, creed, cruelty, and class. None of these distinctions here define our sinfulness. Every person exists in the same state of sin. Culture doesn't make a person more sinful than another person. So there's not another person more worse. Than another. Neither do these issues, these distinctions define our sanctification. Atonement for my sin requires the same death, burial, and resurrection of Christ as it requires for another person. Christ did not die less for, one, for a person of one type and more for another type. There's no person better than another, and our need for Christ makes us all equals because we have the same need. The problem is, we define most relationships where we place greater value on sameness rather than oneness. Most people will associate more with people who are like them and who are similar to them because that's who they're most comfortable with. Differences have a greater potential for division. And T. Wright, commenting on this text in Colossians, these intermingled distinctions of race, ancestral religion, class, and caste provide the best soil for the mutual suspicion and distrust which turn into the vices listed in verse 8. He's not wrong. i have seen that repeatedly, that simply because somebody is different, we distrust them. We must not look upon one another with human eyes and see others as different as ourselves. But rather, we must look through them with God's eyes, look at them with God's eyes, seeing people by the work of Christ. We do that by using the word of God as our lens, not the word of the world. Because the only distinction that matters is are you in Christ or are you out of Christ We have this great emphasis on individual identity today, on being distinctive. And indeed, we are all unique. We're all different. And that uniqueness is what I just said. It generates division because sometimes it it makes it difficult to relate to people or to know where they're coming from or for them to understand us. But you know what happens when we focus on the differences? First, it becomes this is what I want. So give it to me. And second, it becomes, this is who I am. Just accept it. But God doesn't accept a person as they are. And yes, I just said that. God doesn't accept a person as they are. God accepts a person as they are in Christ. And that's the difference. In this way, a believer's identity is not individual. A believer's identity is corporate. It's part of the body of Christ. And this point is crucial because a people's mentality in this area is going to impact how any church functions. To quote Wayne Mack, I believe that one major reason that the Church of Jesus Christ in the United States is very close to being in sheer chaos today is because so many people think themselves an individual rather than as part of the body of Christ. Christianity is not every man for himself. It's every man together for Christ. By Christ's work, then, the Lord is actively restoring what was lost in the fall, just like we saw in the other ones. He's restoring those relationships, restoring fellowship with him, with God, and fellowship with one another. If Christ is in all and of all, as the verse ends, then we look upon other believers. We don't see who they are. We see who they are in Christ. Christ. Or in the case of unbelievers, we see who they are not in Christ. We see people then not as individuals, but as individuals who exist in a group. And this is a joy we see in the verse here, in verse 11, that we're living a restored relationship with one another so that our differences are a means to encourage, edify, and enlighten one another and worship and work for our Lord. The result of this mentality then is going to be a a more exceptional church where we value others and we serve others. The other result is we create more exceptional engagement in the Great Commission, reaching out and making disciples because of who we are in Christ. And we create more exceptional worship with this mentality. This is the joy of Christian relationships, living out who we are in Christ by living in oneness with the body of Christ human relationships, our relationships with one another are not determined by who we are. They're determined by who Christ is. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're grateful that indeed you've given us this provision this provision through Christ that you've provided unification and restoration and reconciliation by the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Lord. Father, we we already have a vision of what the world looks like without that work. We see the division, we see the strife, we see the violence and the hatred that results. And yet, Lord, because we've placed our faith in your son and come to you, we're not bound by that. In fact, that makes us distinctive from the world. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be how we walk. Let us find joy in our relationships with others. And in that, may it testify to your greatness that you can overcome differences. You can overcome the most cruel aspects of our lives, Lord, and provide reconciliation, Lord. Father, that points to your goodness and tells us just how awesome and magnificent you are. So Lord, may we rest in that today. May we give you thanks. May we come before you, finding our unity in you. Commit all these things to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.